I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. A quick warning to listeners, this story contains discussions of suicide and PTSD experienced by veterans. Help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. In this episode, we're joined by Sun News public safety reporter Justin Garcia to look at the life, death, and legacy of Joshua Dunn, a 36-year-old Marine veteran who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. Dunn also suffered from a traumatic brain injury after serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. Dunn was shot and killed by Las Cruces police officers December 2nd, 2016, following an hours-long standoff at the Sleep Inn on Trevise Drive. Dunn was a father of two and a graduate student studying social work at New Mexico State University at the time of his death. The hours leading up to the shooting clearly paint a picture of a man in the throes of a mental health crisis. To help explain how that day unfolded, we'll also be joined by Josh's widow, Melanie. The incident left Dunn's family stunned and heartbroken, and it left the community asking how this could happen. The two officers who killed Dunn were long ago cleared of any wrongdoing, yet the city of Las Cruces reached a settlement with Melanie Dunn in January of this year over her wrongful death claim. I knew Josh both personally and professionally. To get a sense of what happened December 2nd, 2016, we'll start by talking with Melanie. First, Justin, thanks for joining us to talk to us a little bit about your reporting on Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Melanie, thanks for taking some time to talk to us today as well. I know it can't be easy and I don't think I've spoken to you in person since the morning after Josh died. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So why don't you start by kind of telling us how that day began and what happened as it continued? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, what's really interesting is with trauma, you know, something traumatic like this. Um, memory becomes really fragmented. And so my recollection of the events of that day have become very fragmented. And it's very, a lot of my memory is now held with feelings and sounds and touch and some sights, but it's, it's lost a lot of context. Um, so, you know, my, my, memory of that day is is a little distorted but it began with Josh coming home from a therapy the therapy session had gone really well and and it transpired into this deep conversation between us that ultimately resulted in him becoming like distraught and brought on thoughts of suicide and you know this this conversation and this dynamic that was shifting in him I had never experienced in our entire marriage or relationship together I knew he had been suicidal in the past 
but in our relationship, he had never been. So to hear this new perspective and thoughts coming from him was really terrifying. And at the time, he was undergoing evaluations through the VA and medications were changing pretty frequently that year. So I I have an idea of what may have brought on that um, suicide ideation for him. And he certainly had exhibited other signs of mental health issues, uh, mental anguish, as far as social anxiety, which he and I spoke about and other things. But but you're saying this was something that was kind of out of the blue, kind of a brand new, brand new uh, uh, symptom. Right. I mean, not everyone that suffers with depression and anxiety or PTSD have suicidal thoughts. And so his suffering or struggle with mental health throughout our relationship was very much present. And and he was seeking help for that and um, was very open, as you know, in sharing his struggle. And so this shift, to suddenly having thoughts about wanting to die was a big shift and change in something I had never seen before. So um, what happened when he left the house? What or, or what led up to that? You know, he he knew that he was his feelings. I, I, you know, I think I think he knew his feelings were intensifying. He did not want to act upon his thoughts in front of me and his kids. And so he ultimately left the home. When he did is when I discovered that we were missing his his weapon, his gun. And, you know, I had just graduated from social work. And so my immediate thought from what I, I knew as a social worker was call for help in a crisis. And so that's what I did. And what happened after that? I assume police arrived at your house. Yeah. So I had a, yeah, I had a police officer respond to my home and pretty quickly, you know, I contacted a family member to come get the kids from my home. I I was trying to protect them, got the kids out, spoke to an officer and let him know what was happening. And in that first encounter with the police, I felt really reassured. And, you know, time, time passed that I just, the memory of time is really vague for me. And so the next memory that comes to me is being there at the hotel and and just kind of now it's a memory of just kind of observing everything that was unfolding in those in those last hours of his life. So you don't really recall, I, I as I recall, you had uh, given them a description of the vehicle and the vehicle was located at the motel. And then presumably they called you and they said, hey, We've got, uh, we know where he is. Right. Well, you know, I, right after I made the call to authorities, um, I believe I called my sister next and we had family members that were also out in the community by trying to locate him. And I'm not too sure who informed me first that he was found at a hotel, but I actually, when he got to the hotel, he called me and someone here at my house, my sister was here with me and I told her, I'm, I'm on the phone with him and she was on the phone with dispatch and she gave them the number that he called me from. And I believe they they traced that number to the hotel. I remember when we spoke the morning afterward, you had mentioned being there at the hotel, kind of being reassured by police that this would end well. What is your recollection of, of how that happened? 
right. You know, like like I said, that first encounter that I had with an officer here at my house, I felt very reassured. And that continued as I arrived at the hotel and I had spoken to several officers who had reassured me that, you know, non-lethal force was deployed. So, um, for example, they informed me that they had beanbag guns, tasers, flashbangs, you know, things of that sort. Um, if things escalated, so that was reassuring. I was getting updates occasionally. An officer would come out and talk to me and was reassuring and letting me know that they had good rapport with him. And what really sticks out in my mind now is I, I called my mom. You know, I needed to start letting other family members know that this situation was occurring. And I made a phone call to my mom who lives out of town. And as I was on the phone with her explaining that Josh was having thoughts of suicide and, and, you know, we're at a hotel officers are, are talking with him now. Um, you know, I'm trying to be calm and, and let my mom know that I need her support, but that, you know, it, we're hopeful. And then mid sentence, I just heard a fleek of sirens. And, you know, I, that, that's really when I realized things were shifting, you know, there was, in my mind, at least 12 units just flying into the hotel with sirens. And I'm telling my mom, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but there's a big scene now, you know, that there's something's happening and I, I think you need to come down now. And this blur of slow motion, you know, I'm, I'm seeing um, tactical gear being pulled out. I'm seeing assault rifles being pulled out. I'm seeing, you know, other, other gear and, and all these high, like it just, felt intensified once SWAT arrived and my impression that the impression that was given to me was you know these officers need to be relieved and that's understandable that this had been going on for hours but it it seemed suddenly that this shift occurred um, at that moment from the rest of the night I was not getting updates I spoke to Josh the last time about eight o'clock when he was in that hotel room, he called me and I was instructed to terminate that phone call and to never answer my phone from, again from him if he were to call me again. And that what last did, conversation, I what had did he say? Him. He told me he was scared. He said he wanted to come home. He said he was sorry and that he loved me. He asked about our kids. You know, I just kind him that I love him and that, you know, it's okay. He, he can come home. I'll go get him. He was scared to go to a, a psychiatric hospital. And so I promised him I would accompany him for that evaluation. And an officer was with me during that conversation and he was calm and I was reassuring. And then I was instructed to terminate that phone call like abruptly. And I think he knew because I, I think I told him, like, I have to go. My battery is dying. And he kind of paused and was like, I get it. I get it. And he just said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, I love you and I get it. And that was the last thing he said to me. And that shift became apparent to me that what I couldn't see that was happening up in that hotel room was being escalated. And then what happened? You know, I time passed. Um, I wasn't getting much updates. More family was there. So that thing that I really have a vivid memory of is, you know, I'm sitting in the car with his mom parked in the parking lot of that hotel and then I just hear a loud bang that kind of echoed and I, like, my mother-in-law's running out of the car and I'm kind of 
son, what was that? I'm very confused is what I remember. That feeling that stays with me is confusion. And by the time I'm out of my vehicle and walking towards the door to figure out what that noise was, is when we heard a series of funny rapid fire shots ring out from one of the assault rifles. And, and I was still really confused, but I just, was still in this denial that, you know, they said it was less lethal force. So that, that couldn't have been what I just heard. So you're thinking maybe like beanbag shots or I'm, something. I'm thinking they used some kind of, I'm thinking that they deployed some kind of flashbang and that a beanbag, you know, gun was used. Um, and that's what I heard. So in this moment, you know, I'm just in denial. I, I think, intuitively I knew better but I was holding out to what I was told would happen and you know everything just kind of I don't know how quickly it happened but I I remember an ambulance arriving and leaving and returning and people pressing officers that were down on the level pavement level with us and not getting clear answers or information and then I have this vivid memory of an officer walking out of that hotel room and just slamming his vest on the ground and yelling and like banging his fist on the trunk of a unit. And in that moment, I knew like something happened up there that's not good. And, and I was fearful for everyone that was up there. And he was eventually transported to Memorial Medical Center. And that's where, where he passed away, right? Right. So, you you know, I, I um, see the stretcher being taken inside and they, they you know, officers kind of had to um, stay back away, you know, um, stand back a little bit. Josh's brother kind of was more forceful and, and went forward to see if he could find out information and they brought his body down. Um, and I, I could only see from his torso up and they had gauze over his chest. And I just thought he must be unconscious. You know, I, I didn't see any kind of fatal injury. So my mind was something made him go unconscious. And then his brother turned around and faced me and he just put his arm on my shoulder and he said, get to that hospital. He doesn't look good. This this doesn't look good. And in his eyes, I, I knew his brother was telling me, I, I just saw him. He's, he's not alive. And so the, the next is just being at the hospital is very fragmented, too. But um, that's when things become more clear for me, because that was when, you know, the reality and, and confirmation of his death became very, well, that, that became the reality in those moments when we got to Memorial. Even though part of this the focus of this podcast is to walk listeners through our reporting process. I cannot for the life of me, remember what led to our conversation the morning following his death. Somehow I began to suspect that Josh was involved somehow. And maybe I called his cell phone and you answered. Do you, do you recall how that happened? I don't. I do remember speaking to you. I spoke to so many people that morning, you know, because the way that I was informed of his death was really traumatic. I, I found out that my husband was shot and killed through social media. 
And so suddenly I'm in the hospital getting messages from mutual friends asking me if what they're hearing is true. You know, as I'm finally getting to sit down and talk to an officer, he realizes that I was informed of his death inappropriately and he's apologizing and trying to rectify the situation. And then me and this officer are both alerted that an official statement was released to social media from LCPD's website. I know that at the time in that story, we didn't identify you. You chose not to be identified. So I think that the confirmation was attributed to somebody who was present at the scene. Do you, re- um, the, do you recall was, that? Um, you know, the confirmation, there were still family members who stayed behind at the hotel who received notification of his death before I did. And I was at the hospital, so I did not receive that notification. Um, A family member called to let my mom know who was with me. My mom was with me at the hospital. And, you know, I I remember the next day I spoke to you and I spoke to a lot of people with the intention that I just did not want my family and close friends to hear it from anyone else but but me. Um, Sure. And as you know, you know, that um, it as, as these events do, it. I wasn't able to protect a lot of family and friends from that. But yeah, you know, it, it wasn't the unfolding of, of his death and, and notification of it was kind of all over the place. It, it felt very distorted. I had written about Josh before, shortly after he got Sawyer, um, his emotional support dog, uh, a black lab. And I remember you telling me the following morning that you began to think things were very serious when he didn't take Sawyer with him when he left the house. Right. Um, that is true. And and Sawyer was with me at the hotel as well. And we were trying to get Sawyer to him and, and we were not allowed to. We, we were, they, you know, I tried, you know, well, initially I'll take him up there. That was not an option. I asked if an officer could take him up there, you know, and that was not an option. So, yeah, you know, I, that was Sawyer's entire purpose was to provide him comfort. And, you, you know, for whatever reason, and I, I don't know where, where the justification came from, if, if Josh himself did not want Sawyer up there, um, I, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, Sawyer was with me that night, too. Justin, do you have anything that you would like to ask at this point? I don't, but I did want to just say that, uh, Melanie, I, I really um, appreciate you being so willing to, to talk about this, not not once, but twice or three times, it sounds like. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to express my appreciation. And for Well, thank you. Thank you, really, for writing this story, too. I had known Josh for several years before his death. He used to come into the studio when I worked in radio, and uh, he would record commercials for Cytel the call Mm -hmm. center where he worked at the time. Then we stayed in touch after I started reporting at the newspaper. Looking back on that now, I, I, I I can't help but think how courageous that must've been for him. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how much you can or will say about the recent settlement with the city, but my understanding is that the settlement money is going to be used to provide for your children. Correct. Um, you know, my my reason for filing the lawsuit was 
Well, well, one, I, I wasn't getting answers or information. Like I, I wasn't, no one was telling me what happened. No one was giving me information about what led to his death or those final moments or what escalated. And so I, I sought an attorney to help me get answers. And as information came to us and was unfolding that I realized like we have a really big issue in this state, in this city and change needs to occur. And, you know, I wasn't seeking, you know, millions of dollars to heal this wound. I, w- I was really filing a lawsuit seeking change and better training and better advocacy for our officers and also for our community members who struggle with mental health. And so the monetary settlement that I got um, is, is for my children. That's secured for their future. That's what their dad would have been able to help them with had you know when they grow up and go to college and have their life but really my whole purpose of this of this lawsuit was to create change in this community and to advocate for better e- equipment and for better training and for better understanding of those who suffer from mental illness and find themselves in a crisis and you work in the mental health field right melanie i do yes yeah what do you think could be done to better address these situations involving people like Josh, who clearly was facing a mental health crisis when this happened? Well, I think number one is, is better understanding and, and destigmatizing mental health. I do understand and we do need to recognize that some untreated mental health issues and long term untreated mental health issues can result in violent reactions. But for example, you know, there, there was not a clear understanding of what PTSD um, was in that moment for me. You know, I there was some assumptions that PTSD was like schizophrenia. Some of those officers thought that Josh actually had schizophrenia. They didn't know that he actually had PTSD. And so they were under the assumption that he was possibly hallucinating and was violent. And so those kind of misunderstandings and misjudgments of somebody who struggles with mental health could be better addressed. Accountability and integrity goes along with that, too. Yeah. And and those of us who knew Josh, uh, like that's that's a little far fetched, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, he certainly didn't didn't present like uh, 99% of the time as somebody who even had mental health issues. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something that he certainly kept guarded. He, he, he spoke about it openly. You know, he spoke about his challenges. Um, he spoke to me about his challenges. If you, if you met him on the street, it's not something you would know. Right. And I think most people who struggle with mental health, it is not noticeable. It's not a badge that they wear on their sleeve. It's, it's, these are very, like people who struggle with mental health are often very high functioning people who can complete a college education, who can be successful in their careers. Um, again, that, that stigma and belief that someone with a mental health issue is, is very visible to the world is just it's not true. It's not always true. Now, um, 
let's talk a little bit about Josh's legacy, which I know is is important to you and and his family. Talk about the scholarship that your family has established in his honor at NMSU. Yeah, so I, you know, pretty soon after he passed away, um, so many family members and friends just knew that something needed to be established in his name. Like his his work needed to continue. His his dreams did not die with him. His goals did not die with him. And so me and, and our immediate family knew pretty early on that, that we wanted to continue that. You know, we wanted to complete what he set out to do in life and, and kind of create this legacy for his children to also know and see and not be defined by their dad's death, but to be defined by what their dad contributed to this world. And one of the one first thing that, that came to me really was from another social worker at NMSU who gave me a call heard about what we were intending to do and said, I, I want to get you in connection with NMSU's foundation department and create this scholarship. And that, that's where it began. And, and we were just like, that's one of the most proudest things that we have worked together for as a family and very grateful for all the, all the donors and people who helped fund and establish this scholarship that, that will live on forever at NMSU and that will support veterans and their dependents as they achieve their educational goals and career goals is very meaningful for for us and for his kids now. And to be clear, it's an endowed scholarship for student veterans, right? And, and their dependents, yeah. Is there anything you want to add, Melanie, that we haven't asked you? You know, I I think what what has become of this experience for for me and, and for his kids and for our family has been awareness of of people struggling with mental health and, and advocating and being an ongoing part of these conversations. It feels like this chapter has closed on the legal end, but it also feels like the road has opened up a lot more to have ongoing discussions that um, I think we're all just just really grateful and looking forward to because I think we would all agree that anytime we get to talk about Josh and talk about um, what he's continuing to do for our community is very fulfilling for all of us. How's, uh, how's Sawyer doing? Sawyer is, um, <laughs> he was retired a couple years ago. Um, and so he's enjoying retirement and playing with kids and, um, he loves to run around the yard. He's a free dog now. <laughs> He's doing <laughs> really well and living up his retirement. And we're so grateful um, that we were able to keep him. And he's just such, he's such a goofball. Like now that he's retired, we get to see his real personality. And Sawyer is a big goofball. <laughs> he loves to play. <laughs> he, he's off the hook. So, uh, so, so now he can be his true self, huh? Yes, yes. And his true self is very, very hilarious and very silly. Well, uh, thanks again for taking some time to talk to us about Josh today. We appreciate you sharing your insight and your experience. Like I said, I, I know it probably isn't easy, but we definitely appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you guys so much. I am so appreciative um, of getting the opportunity to talk about him. Justin, talk to us about what's changed or what hasn't at LCPD since Josh's death. Yeah, that's that's a 
It's a really interesting question because externally, over the last five, six years, a lot has changed in light of some of the very high-profile killings of African-Americans across the country and subsequent protests that, uh, that followed those in the summer of 2020. The entire country has sort of refocused on the role of police. And uh, of course, there are famously some, a couple of examples of police instances of, of, uh, of police killings here in, here in Las Cruces during that same period that have brought a lot of attention to the Las Cruces Police Department. Internally, it's difficult to say. In that same five-year period from, or I should say, from, from January 2017 to, uh, to now, the city of Las Cruces has settled six wrongful death lawsuits, five of them were through the police department. The total cost was about $8.4 million. And when you, I asked uh, Sergeant Bob McCord, who was in charge of the crisis intervention team for the Las Cruces Police Department, that question about what's changed. And his answer was not much. He, when he talked about the, uh, the Josh Dunn incident, he very much refers to it. Uh, he, 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 talks about it as, as though it was a very, as a somewhat inevitable event, that despite what he describes as the best efforts of the department, that situation unfolded as it did with, with Josh being killed by police officers. He says that there was a, he says that there was a more vital moment about 10 years before where the police department was sued after, after someone was killed by officers and the department really took a hard look at itself and began to refocus some of its tactical response towards something that was a little bit more, at the very least, aware of people's mental health, if not taking that into further consideration. So essentially, the position is that it was not only inevitable, it was it was by the books. Yeah, the the quote, the quote from Sergeant McCord, who uh you know, by by coincidence, who was actually the lead negotiator at the scene um, during the the Josh Dunn situation? The quote that really stuck with me from him was that he said, "Some fish don't want to be caught." Here's LCPD Sergeant Robert McCord. You know, I, I'm going to tell you this: that we have 80 percent of our department are trained in CIT. So I, I defy any anybody to find a department our size with 80 percent. I think we've done a good job there. I think any officer responding to a situation has the tools available to them to communicate. One of the one of my mentors always made the comment that not every fish wants to be caught, and that's very true. Mm-hmm. I learned that through negotiating. That sometimes you you uh, you're just going to find that fish who will not who refuse to be caught. And I think wrapped in that statement is a sort of acknowledgement that he believes, you know, five years on, that there was nothing that police officers could have done. And, to, you know, the, the sergeant and I also talked a lot about, yeah, exactly, that, that the pieces were kind of already moving and that no amount of de-escalation would have, would have stopped that. And, and, of course, it's, it's tough to say, right? You and me... Melanie, even Sergeant McCord weren't in the room when it happened. Um, there are also no body cameras uh, on the officers who who uh, shot Josh Dunn. So it's it's kind of 
outside of the comprehension of, of you and me. But um, despite the settlement, uh, LCPD and the city still maintain the the shooting was justified. Yep, that's correct. It was uh, the the district attorney's office reviewed the case and and declared that. Uh, that the officers did not violate any policy and, and that the shooting was justified. That's obviously not uncommon. Before we go, tell us uh, a little bit about how you covered this story. What questions you went into it with and and what you hope to accomplish? Yeah. So initially I had gone into it with that, that question that you started with, which sort of just asking what, if anything has changed in the last uh, five, six years. And the deeper I got into the story, and especially after talking to to Melanie, to Josh's brother, and to the and to Sergeant McCord, I, I was really left with a a very different perspective on on the whole issue, and that was that um, so much of what what happened on that day was kind of all of these different forces stemming from different institutions putting these people in this position in which they had no way out. Uh, on the one hand, you had Josh, who, you know, as, as Melanie said, was someone who I think really cared about his mental health and really cared about his family. And I think he really tried. Uh, he really tried to to improve his position and he really put in the work to get better. And through a series of, of triggering circumstances that became impossible in a brief moment. And, and even even that became, night... It, was expressing interest in, you know, seeking help. Right. But he represented a public safety threat. And that's that's language that Sergeant McCord used. He represented a public safety threat. And the police can't just let that go. And so it, it's tough. It's tough because they're, they're in a situation where they have to either – and the th- they have to end the threat one way or the other. They can't just they can't just pack up and leave. What? And, and you know, you ask like, well, what was the public safety threat? Right? There was no one else in the room. Why couldn't the police officers just pick up and leave? This is something that the sergeant and I talked about. Was that well, he represented a threat to himself, and that counts. And so he, you know, and the the role of the police in our society is to respond to public safety threats and and. He was a public safety threat to himself. And, you know, Sergeant McCord mentioned this in briefing that, you know, as our opinions and and societal values on on things like suicide sort of shift and that maybe that'll change. But they couldn't leave. And leaving was the probably the only thing that would have helped deescalate that situation truly, you know, to a level that it needed to be. I can tell by listening to your voice and knowing you um, how tormented you are by this situation that there really is no a a a more positive outcome is is hard to arrive at Mm -hmm. and i think that's i think that's interesting especially for our readers and listeners yeah yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, it's one of the things I was struck by in this story. It's just how much nuance there is, because so many times when you when you talk about police and you talk about police killings, there's this there's this instinct to sort of come down on one side or the other of this issue, right? And that's obviously reinforced by you know social media and, and blah blah blah. But I mean, to me, what struck me about this, like I said, was that all of these people, 
Well, I, I just to jump back to that anecdote that Melanie had talked about, I, I was that was the first time I heard that about the police officer coming out of the hotel and tossing his vest on the ground and, and banging his fist against the wall. I mean, that that encapsulates the entire circumstance. Clearly, that person did not want to be there. And clearly, that person did not want that thing to end the way it did. But that individual with individual autonomy had to still be there. And he had to take those actions because of the, the, the institutional pressures that put him there. And yeah. that was kind of the... And, and that's obviously incredibly difficult to capture in a story or, or in a podcast. It's kind of only something that can be experienced, I think. And, and I'm very thankful that Melanie came to the podcast and, and shared that anecdote and shared her experience because I think that more than anything else will will help people understand kind of this this problem and this this particular issue that's kind of plaguing not just our our community here in Las Cruces across the entire country. Yeah, and another thing that is unusual for me specifically is to have like a firsthand connection to the the victim of a, a police shooting. You know, sure. Yeah. And I, I think that was something I think, I mean, you knew Josh, I, I did not. But what everyone has told me about him was that he was a very friendly person and that he seemed to to leave an impression on people after after reading them just a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, and this this scenario, uh, even for Melanie, from her telling, was entirely out of character. And it's very unfortunate that uh, it ended the way it did. Justin, thank you for uh, taking some time and talking to us about your reporting on the issue. Like I said, as, as someone who knew Josh, I can say that his untimely death left a tremendous impact on me and it really points to a need that is largely going unmet in our community yeah i i <laughs> i have to agree but, it, but thanks for having me and i hope that that i hope that there are people who who have a chance to listen to the story or, or read it in the paper and um just think about some of the mental health challenges in their in their own life and, and feel compelled to to seek help or, or help others who need it. Thanks, Justin. We hope you'll continue to follow all of these important stories and the rest of Justin's reporting with a subscription to The Sun News. Also, please subscribe to this podcast, available on Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn, Stitcher, and many other places you find your favorite podcasts. Again, if you're struggling with Thoughts of suicide help is available by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. Please subscribe to the Las Cruces Sun News to read all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces. Until next time, I'm Damian Willis. Thanks for listening.